Mino Lion Media presents Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith. Matthew Knowles has fathered, produced, and managed one of the most famous singers in history, Beyonce. But Beyonce and Destiny's Child have not only been his exceptional hits, he's a man always on a mission, and he's not slowing down. Matthew, thanks so much for joining the conversation. Hey, thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure for me to be here. And I have to tell you, I, uh, I read up on you. I always like to do my research. It, it made me very proud to see academically, educationally, uh, what you have done and number of books you've written. Man, I'm, I'm just proud of you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, maybe if I write 10 more books, my mother will become proud of me. So we'll see if I can get there. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, uh, we had that conversation. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, listen, I, I'm really excited to talk to you. And, um, you know, I also have done my research on you. And, you know, our paths uh, are supposed to cross because uh, I was working with a campaign called Flex for Checks uh, with Burgess, uh, and it was about helping people get vaccinated. Um, and I know they had, there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's right. So so we both are, are, are in that program together. Um, wonderful program. Everyone's going to expect me to talk to you right off about Destiny's Child and all that stuff. We'll get to that. But I want to talk about you for a second, right? Um, and where you've come from. Um, Alabama, right? Came from a little small town in Gaston, Alabama. Uh, grew up on a, uh, initially grew up on a dirt road uh, with an outhouse. Wow. Wow. An outhouse. I've seen an outhouse. Never used it, but I've seen it. Yeah, I'm glad uh, you didn't have to use them. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's that's my humble beginnings. Uh, you know, my parents uh, were poor, but a black poor sometimes is different. I never knew I was poor. Uh, my parents worked very hard. Uh, my dad was a truck driver, convinced the white folks he worked for to keep that truck. And he would go and tear down little houses in. And, and then he would sell the metals of them. He would buy old cars that people had abandoned in their yards and he would sell all the parts. My mother was a colored maid. Uh, she made $3 a day, but she convinced the white woman she worked for uh, to give all the hand-me-down, you know, apparel, sheets, clothes, and, and asked her to ask all her friends. And then on the weekends, my mother and her two best girlfriends would make these beautiful quilts and sell them. Uh, so I, 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 that's where I began my humble beginnings. However, comma, my parents uh, taught me always that I could reach for the sky and reach for the stars, that I could dream uh, and, and entrepreneurship. And so I, I love them for those traits and, and values. You know, it's interesting. Um you know, to have that kind of upbringing. And I love where you say that Black poor can be different because sometimes our parents and their generation have a way of not letting us know how poor we really are. And I came from also very humble beginnings. And while I knew there was a disparity between what I had and what David Rubin had, um, I also didn't feel, though, that I was poor. I felt like, well, his dad was a doctor, so of course he had more things. But we didn't want for anything, um, you know, we, we didn't get 20 gifts at Christmas, but we didn't need 20 gifts at Christmas, right? We ate, we had, like my grandfather would say, we had heat in the winter, we had cool air, 
in the summer uh, and the fridge always had food in it. So uh, we come from very similar backgrounds. And what I find interesting um, with your background, and I think it's hard to explain to people sometimes well, unless you live through, because I did too, what happens as a child when you see your caregivers, who, which may be your parents or grandparents or uncles, aunts, but when you see them actually working the way they work and staying positive and making it happen, what that does to your psyche as a child without them sitting down and saying, listen, you've got to do X, Y, Z. Just witnessing it allows you to absorb that, does it not? It absolutely does. Uh, and, the, and the messaging and the values that were taught. You know, my, my parents taught me early on the difference between determination and passion. Um, you know, they had the determination to provide for their, their kids. But my dad, I'm not sure he was passionate being a truck driver. I'm not sure my mother was passionate being a colored maid. Uh, but they took that determination and turned it towards their passion. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I learned that at a very early age. You know, Ian, uh, I have a very, I think, a very interesting uh, childhood. My mother went to high school with Coretta King in Marion, Alabama. Uh, also, Andrew Young was in that class, his, his, his wife as well. So here are these three women in Marion, Alabama. My mother moved to uh, Gaston, Alabama, married my father, and took up the torch of uh, desegregation. Mm. So imagine, I was born in 1952, and I just turned 70 uh, weeks ago. So in elementary school, is 1958. From 1958 to 1970, I never went to a black school. Mm. Think about that. Gaston, Alabama, George Wallace was the uh, governor. Bull Connor, we heard the president the other day said, I'm sure a lot of you were like, who the hell is Bull Connor? Well, Bull Connor and Al Lingo was over uh, the highway patrolman. That, that's who used to beat the hell out of us. Uh, so here I am, a kid, integrating these schools, um, mm. which were quite traumatic, quite traumatic. I, I can't begin. I've been beaten. I've been electric prided. I've been spit on and called every name you can imagine. Uh, and had to spend years, I'm sure we'll talk about something black folks don't like talking about, and that's mental illness. And I spent 10 years in therapy just for that trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, I gained a lot from that. Uh, you know, it, it, I learned that I had to be the best. Uh, I, I learned work ethics. I, I learned the culture that I was around and uh, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I know you went to Harvard. Every summer I go to Harvard, this, Harvard. this will be my coming up this summer, my third uh, summer. I've taken ethical leadership and uh, cultural uh, experience this last summer. And so I would, it enabled me to understand white culture by going to schools, white schools. And that has helped me throughout my career and my life. You know, it's interesting. Wow, there's so much in there. Um, you know, I often think about, so my first touch point beyond my grandfather, who taught me a lot, even when I didn't understand a lot of it, but he's from the South. And so he taught me a lot about segregation and what it was growing up. And 
all the stories. I'd sit at his knee literally and just listen for hours as he would recount all these very horrible uh, stories about what happened to them. But my real first feeling like I got it was being taught a course at Harvard uh, by Julian Bond, uh, the great wow. civil rights leader who was visiting from Virginia as a visiting professor. And I was a biology pre-med student. And someone said on campus, they said, hey, Ian, you should look at this course. The civil rights movement is being taught by this guy, Julian Bond. And it's supposed to be a really good course. I'm like, well, you know, it's outside of my major. I don't, you know, I'm math and science guy. They said, no, this, this course is really, you should take this course. And, you know, at Harvard, it's a liberal arts school. So we have to take courses in different subjects. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll take this course. And I got to tell you, of all the courses I took at Harvard, the most impactful, I don't care what anyone says, was the course taught by Julian Bond. It's the first time I really felt like I understood what our people went through. Uh, and I felt this emotional connection to my blackness and my history. And so when you talk about all the things that happened to you uh, as a child and needing therapy uh, after all of that, I can't help but you know, nod my head to you and salute you because it's an experience that I have never had and hope never to have. But all of you guys who have gone through it and have survived and have thrived are warriors to me. It's not just the Martin Luther Kings of the world and Rosa Parks. Yes, they're heroes and warriors, but there are thousands and thousands of warriors like you who made it through the storm um, and thrived after that. So I wanna salute you for that. But I also wanna say to you, when you were in the midst of all of this, did you ever really think that you'd be able to grow and become when all this stuff was happening to you as a child? I did, I, I did. And a lot of it had to do just having really good parents. Uh, you know, I always, I always used to say, knowing your kid, people ask you, hey boy, what you gonna be when you grow up? And my answer would always be, I'm gonna be a businessman. Uh, <laughs> I always knew, Ian, I wanted to be a businessman uh, because there was a couple of people in my neighborhood. One was a minister and this guy would go to the grocery store and he would have a suit on. And I was like, I want to be like that one day. Uh, and, and, and so we had these role models that we used to have in our Black communities. So, you know, I often say the only people that integrated were Black people. We moved out of our neighborhoods and integrated others and, and lost our neighborhoods where we had already the core that we needed, the grocery stores, the, the, the doctors, the lawyers, the filling stations, as they called them back then. Uh, so yes, I, I always had that belief because of my, my parents uh, and how strong they were. And similar to you, my grandfather is my idol, uh, Dave Hogue in Marion, Alabama, uh, who owned 300 acres of land, who I thought was just a genius entrepreneur because he would parcel 100 acres of that land to the paper mill who would pay him to lease that land. They would tear down, cut down all the trees and bush, and then he would go back and farm. And I'm like, granddaddy, those white people pay granddaddy to cut down the trees and bush. That's genius. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, 
one thing our people are is they are creative and inventive. Um, <laughs> and we've had to figure it out, right? I mean, we have to, we've had to yeah. do that. Um, and so, okay, so you're in Alabama, you do this. What gets you beyond Alabama? Where do you go and how do you go? Well, it was the old adage that he's black and he's tall. He must be a basketball player. Uh, so that happened to me <laughs> at Litchfield Junior High. Unbeknownst to the coach, I was the little skinny kid that was always last to be picked because I was, I mean, I was not coordinated. I couldn't shoot and I was skinny. Uh, so I, I realized, you know, it's interesting uh, through basketball, I was, I was, you know, awful my, my first year in junior high school. Uh, but that summer I worked at it and then I was fortunate to get a really good coach who believed in me and I kept working at it, working at it. Uh, that, you know, by the time I was a, a senior, uh, I was averaging, you know, 25 points and, you know, 12 rebounds and had several scholarships. So I ended up going to University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. So not only did I integrate uh, high school and junior high and elementary, also University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Um, mm. uh, and then I went to Fisk University, University, where a lot of life changed for me because my first days at Fisk, you know, I have a book called uh, Racism for the Eyes of a Child. And I have a chapter called Fisk Out of Water, like mm. Fisk Out of Water. Because mm -hmm. when I first got to Fisk, I had never been around Black people. Wow. In wow. a social environment, you know, other. And I, I was like, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> you know, so. Well, we're similar. I mean, you know, I also um, come from a small town in Connecticut, uh, which is obviously the opposite pole of the country compared to where you were. But. Um, I also went to, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. My brother and I were the only black people in our class. Um, and then I went on to Harvard. Uh, and so my real first experience of being, and we had black people obviously at Harvard, but obviously in a vast minority, but my real experience of being around a lot of African-Americans who looked like me and could talk like me and um, was when I went uh, to one of the HBCUs. Um, I went down to Howard's homecoming um, and uh, it was just beautiful. It was amazing to see so many other African-Americans who were in college, who were you know studying and reading just like I was doing back up at Harvard. And it was just beautiful to see that. Um, I, I really felt, it's interesting. I felt more assured because back on campus where I was, there were so few of us that you say to my goodness, my goodness, are we gonna really make it? I mean, if it's just this few of us really getting an education, what's gonna happen? But then I go down to Howard's homecoming and everybody, as far as the eye can see is black. <laughs> and they're, you know, they're in biology and math and drama and art. And so I'm like, oh my goodness, we can do this, right? We can do this. Um, so very similar experience. So you go to you go to Fisk, you get educated. Uh, I also read that you and I didn't know this before uh, that you were involved in sales for medical supplies uh, 
for some yeah, time. Well, you know, being a, a doctor as you are, uh, you know, there's a big difference in medical supplies and diagnostic imaging equipment. Yes, uh, yes, yes. So, so I uh, worked at Xerox selling copiers. Uh, it was an interesting bunch of black guys just hanging out for a happy hour. And um, this man comes over, this white man comes over and he says, you know, I'd like to talk to you. And he says, uh, you know, I've listened to you guys talk for an hour, so you never know who's listening, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, I want to hire you at Xerox. I said, what? He says, yes, I've been listening to you interface with your friends. You're a leader. I want to hire you. And that's how wow. I got my job at Xerox and moved quickly in the company, uh, you know, as a sales trainee in engineering uh, division. And then I sold copies for the year. It was always the number one for that. And then got a quantum leap um, for zero radiography. Uh, no one thought I would get the position. I asked the branch manager to get his blessing and interview. And he said, well, you're not going to get it, but it'd be good experience. But what they didn't know, Ian, is that I spent a month going to the library because this division, Xerox Medical System, was the leading modality in the 80s for breast cancer detection, zero radiography. Mm -hmm. um, so when I interviewed, while everybody else was talking about, I've been here 20 years, I've been here 15 years, I said, well, I've only been here for a year and a half, but I was the number one sales rep every quarter. And I can talk about breast cancer. And, and that impressed the, the, the sales manager. And so I got the position for multiple years, eight years in that division. Um, I was the number one worldwide salesman. Wow. Then the president of that decision, the division left and went to Phillips Medical System Systems, and he brought me with him. Of course, he's going to bring his top sales rep. And I was fortunate to be the first black to sell, and I'm really proud to say this, to sell MRI and CT scanners in America. And as wow. you know, first generation of MRI, you had to know the technical part. I had to be able to explain what is it? Uh, <laughs> spinning, we have spinning protons. Put the magnet, precess, you know, I had to go through all of that. Uh, and, and so then did well with that and headhunters calling me all over all the time and ended my career with Johnson and Johnson as a neurosurgical specialist. These are all highly, you know, you gotta know your stuff. <laughs> you, no doubt. And if you're black, you really have to know your stuff. <laughs> you can't fake it. You can't fake this. <laughs> no, <laughs> at all. So, so you're doing, I mean, you are, you are an accept. Let me ask you this question real fast though. Were you better than others? What was it about you? What did you have that the others didn't that allowed you always to be the top salesperson? I can answer that. It's those years that I integrated those schools. Remember, I, I said I took away. And the, the takeaway for me is I'm better. Mm. Mm. I can be better. Mm. Not so much that I was better then, but that I can be better. Mm. If I work hard enough, find my passion, because I was passionate about sales and marketing. I love, still today, I still love selling and marketing. I, you know, I, 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 everything in my life, I, you know, I'm writing a book now called When I Look Back. You know, you know, people talk about Beyonce, but 
the things I touch always were the best at it. Mm. Mm. I love that. See, I, you know, I tell people all the time that unless you believe, I tell my kids this, you know, they play tennis, okay? Before the tournament, I say, you got to believe that regardless of who is on the other side of that net, you can beat them. You have to believe that. I don't care what their ranking is, what the rating is, how big they are. You have to believe that if you do what you know how to do, that you can beat whoever's on the other side of that net. And so you saying to yourself, I know I can be better. I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's fundamental because people sometimes are doubtful of their abilities or what their trajectory is. And it's that doubt that weighs and bogs them down compared to others who have a sense of confidence that they can do it, right? They're not afraid. They're also not afraid to lose. And so here you are, you know, as you say, integrating and doing all these things, but you're also taking away from the experience. It's kind of building you up, building your, letting you know you can do this, you can do this. One hurdle's higher than the other, but you know you got over the last seven hurdles, you can get over this hurdle too. Uh, and I just think that that's so instructive for our people uh, and for anybody, not just our people. I think it's instructive for people in general in life uh, to, you know, we have such a short time here to always feel like you can do something, right? I mean, I just, you know, you got to believe in it. But but as I tell, you know, my kids and you know, I'm sure you do the same and my students, uh, you have to put in work. <laughs> and, and I have that confidence because I put in the work. Just like that story when I interviewed, I had that confidence because I nobody else thought to go to the library and understand breast cancer. I did. So I put in the work. That's how I got to it. Not just because I had been the number one salesman, but because I put in the work. No different than when your kids play tennis, they put in the work of practice to be very good at. It. So you have to do them both, I always say uh, that's the beauty of finding your passion, that thing mm. that energize and excite us because when you live your passion, you never work a day in your life. So it's fun. So when you put in the work, you're actually having fun. I tell people all the time, do whatever you got to do to find your passion because that is like a pot of gold. You have found a pot of gold because it really changes. It's a paradigm shift. When you are passionate about something, so much other stuff just kind of fades away because you have focus, you have love, you have desire, you have motivation. All these things all of a sudden line up for you to do um, what you're passionate about. And so here you are, you're, you're a top salesperson, and then all of a sudden you're going into music? Where did this? How did this happen? Well, it happened uh, part of parenting. Uh, you know, Beyonce and Solange, uh, I always say to parents, I feel our role as parents is with our kids is to look at what they gravitate toward and then surround them with all the tools that they need. Uh, it can't be the parents' passion or dream. It has to be theirs. And, and, and that's what happened. My kids were always singing, were always having what we used to call, we're having a show, daddy. Uh, we're having a show tonight. You know, I have to always watch these shows. And I'm talking, they're five, you know, they're little kids. Uh, but that's, but we took them to science fairs. We took them to NASA. We let them do dance. 
uh, joined dance troops. Uh, we exposed them, them to a lot of different things to see what that was, their passion. And I tell parents, if you have to tell your kids, how do you identify it? If I have to tell my kid to go to practice, that's a hobby. Wow. Wow. Because kids with their passion, they're going to bug the hell out of you. You know, daddy, I got practice tomorrow. <laughs> you know? So that's what we did. We surrounded them with the things they loved and, and, and gave them the tools. And we got them in vocal lessons, dance troupe. But Matthew, but this is interesting, by the way, and I, I'm going to continue in a second. But when I grew up, I always believed that the distractions were less, okay? And even when Beyonce and Solange were young compared to kids now, there are so many distractions now for kids. It's so difficult as a parent, because your advice is, I 100% agree with you, that if you got to tell your kid, we need to go to practice, then that's not your kid's passion. But I also think that the kids are so seduced by social media, by video games, by all these things that are happening. And studies have shown what they do to a kid's mind. These, you know, the dopamine release in a kid's mind that these things do. And so when you say to a kid, let's go look at some art, let's go um, look at some engineering things, they look at you like, what are you talking about? And it's because those things don't produce the dopamine effect that playing the video game, getting instant gratification on, on TikTok or Instagram. And so it's difficult, I think, now for parents to try to kind of uh, quiet down that external noise so they can truly find what they're passionate about. It's not easy. I mean, I, you know, I told my kids all the time, geez, I love going to basketball practice. Like, you didn't, I play basketball four hours a day. My mother had to tell us to stop playing basketball. It, she wasn't saying you need to practice two hours. She would say, you guys got to take a break. That's the kind of thing I think we're missing now. Well, I, you make a very valid point because these kids today pick up that phone over 2,000 times a day. Uh, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, I think as you were talking, I was saying, oh, what would I do? Um, and, and what immediately came to mind is that I would have to educate myself on technology uh, and maybe be like, oh, here's a singing game. Let's play it. Uh, here's a bas basketball game. Let's play it. Uh, embrace the technology that my kids are. Don't be like, oh, don't you know, take the phone away. You can't do that. But no, let's let's use psychology and, and let's say, hey, let's let me show you how to play these games. And, and therefore, it's still subconsciously happening you with your craft. I think that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, I like that, by the way. That's, I think that's very good and very instructive for parents who are listening. Uh, it can be very helpful. So here you are, you got two daughters. They love to dance and sing and, and put on shows. When do you think that, wow, this could be something? Well, you know, I used to drop Beyonce off. I was actually, <laughs> I had an addiction to playing basketball. <laughs> you know, I played basketball in college. I didn't have a mentor. I wasn't focused. And every basketball player wants to go to the NBA. I didn't go to the NBA because I did put in the work. Uh, and so after college, 
I became crazy, man, on the basketball court. So I'll drop Beyonce off, go play basketball five hours to come back and pick her up. That was my role because my former wife, we owned a hair salon. And so on the weekend, she was there working in the hair salon. So I had to do a lot of those, those roles and, and enjoy doing them. It was not until they lost. And I always say that in our lives, when we make mistakes and lose and failure is an opportunity to grow and not a reason to quit. Mm-hmm. And, and when they lost at Star Search, and I went down because they, the managers then thought they were going to win for a month. And so literally had a extra room full of wardrobe, uh, extra hotel. And, and so when the girls lost, they they went up against these grown-ups, rock band, uh, and they were just crying. I went over to Ed McMahon, and I said, what does a dad do? And he says, well, you know, Mr. Bowles, uh, with his deep voice, a lot of people don't understand. Boys to men is not the same boys to men that, that you guys, when they came here, uh, you know, us here lost. And we started naming all these people. And, and he said, what they had in common is they went back, they redefined, they regrouped. Uh, and they made changes in the organization. Uh, and that's when I got involved. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't initially, I played the role of a dad. And, and even then when I got involved, I went back to school because I believe knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. Took management, artist management courses, production courses, um, and, and went to every seminar I could uh, and tried and to build relationships. And that's when I got in the music industry. I made a transition, and that, that's, that's one valuable thing that I must say. Something also happened, managed care. And as a neurosurgical specialist, after a procedure, I got called, paged by the hospital. And as you know, that don't normally happen. So I'm thinking, did we lose the patient? Did I say something wrong? Uh, what, why did a neurosurgeon want to talk to me? So I get there and he says, Mr. Knowles, I love your instruments, but I just got this letter and he showed me that if he didn't reduce his costs per procedure in OR, he was gonna have to lose his his ability to practice there. Uh, And as you know, nobody's gonna do that. So he said he couldn't use my instruments. I called my former wife and I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't sell costs. So I had to, transition and I say transition because a lot of people just quit versus transition so I Mm -hmm. transitioned into the music industry by continuing on the job going back to school getting knowledge then I I left corporate America and became a manager and how old were the girls at this point that would have been in 90 so they were like 12 13 okay and did you feel at that point that with your growing knowledge of how this whole thing worked, did you feel like they could get to a level? I, I felt that, again, by research, and understanding marketing and sales is my background, understanding that the product that I had was an amazing product. And the product was the talent and the, the work ethics and desire of Beyonce in the forefront and Kelly, and, and that what was happening then is you had this whole movement and music of kids. You had ABC, another bad creation. You had Crisscross. You had TLC. You had Usher, and and our business, the music business, 
is a very cyclical business. Like what's hot today and then everybody. So what was hot then was kids. And so everybody wanted to do it. And, and, and so we went on artist development and putting in the work uh, to constantly become better. Beyonce just was given a God-given gift and talent. Um, and, and she also had leadership abilities. Even as a very young kid, she would actually do some of the rehearsals uh, mm. and, and at 10, 11 years old. Even. So, you know, I, I felt as though we had the, the talent, but what most people, I call it the Jedi trick of the media, most people think the first artist I managed was Destiny's Child. It wasn't. It was a rapper named Lil O, who was signed to MCA Records that I got signed, who had at the time Puffy and Mary J. Blige and mm -hmm. uh, Jodeci. It was the record label. And his first song, and folks, you can go Google this, is Can't Stop. And it features this group called Destiny. What I'm loving about your journey, by the way, I mean, I'm happy about Destiny's Child. What I'm really loving about your journey, though, is how you are constantly evolving, constantly learning, and constantly willing to take on new challenges. Because that, that's what I love about life. I love challenges. I love trying new things. Uh, and people say, why are you doing that? Because I'm this kind of guy where life is short. I want to try stuff. I it's not a winning or losing, failing or succeeding. I want to try it. If it's something that I think would be interesting to me and, and interesting, I want to try it. And I love that in you. I love that you push the boundaries and you say, let me go back and, and go to school and put in the work. Uh, and people see you and they see your daughter's success and they think, oh, it was just, you, he didn't have to do anything. She just was born with this voice, but there's work no. involved. No. And, and, and even uh, when they filled at Star Search, uh, then they got signed by Babyface and L.A. Reed's partner, Daryl, amazing man, Daryl Simmons. Uh, and they got dropped by Electric Records, uh, who had in vogue at the time. Uh, so failure, mistakes, getting better, uh, that's really life. Life is not microwave success. And as you see, people say, people see the end results and the media paints the end results, but it's, they don't see the hard work of the mistakes and failures that are made to get there. Uh, and, and that's important. And something else you said, you know, and I could talk to you, man, all day, brother. You're a good brother, man. I just, we just had a conversation. I'm loving this. Uh, and how much we have in common. Uh, but I always use the word transferable skills. Mm. Xerox, man, they're training back in the 70s and 80s, unparalleled in sales and marketing. And I have taken that transferable skill to, and I always say, you know, I didn't know anything about hair salon. My former wife, similar to Beyonce, just gifted and talented uh, in, in that skill set. But I took a concept from the medical field. You, what was the number one thing that women don't work? I did my research, focus groups. Well, it's time. They don't like sitting around a hair salon and will pay three times as much. For it. So if I can reduce their time and say your appointment is at two o'clock and we start at two. So I created this whole program of where we, how we could do that. I didn't know anything about 
clothing and apparel when we did House of Darion and Darion, Miss Tina at Walmart, and I was the chief marketing officer. And, but I knew my customer and I knew how to message to my customer. Mm. I didn't know anything about the music. I went back to school and, and gained those skills. So that transferable skill has always helped me in these different, as I grew and, and, and moved to other aspects of business in my life. Can you think back and let me know, when do you think, if it was, was there a moment where you felt like, wow, we turned the corner, we're going straight up. Was there a moment where you say, or that we made it? For me, it's been multiple times because most people think that I've just worked with Beyonce and uh, Solange and Destiny's Child, uh, not understanding that Little Music World Gospel Division was the number one gospel label. So it was a moment uh, with Leandra Johnson when she became the number one female gospel artist and won her Grammy. Uh, that was that I felt, you know, we made it with this gospel label, uh, you know, doing the OJs and Shaka Khan and Cool and the Gang and Earth, Wind and Fire last album. It was the time that I said, man, pinching myself. I'm working with these people I grew up listening to, you know. <laughs> so there's been multiple times in my life. I mean, uh, seeing Beyonce even win her uh, and making it monumental of being a most coveted Grammy, female Grammy winner, winner in the history of music. Uh, it, gosh, there's so many, it's hard to pinpoint uh, which one. When you look at Beyonce and Solange, um, is there a moment that sticks out in your mind as a truly special moment professionally for them? Yes, for, for Solange, it was a, a huge moment for her. It was a great dad moment for me uh, when she won her Grammy, uh, when she had her number one album, Two Sisters, first time in the history of the music industry that Two Sisters had number one albums in the same year. And it was a, a, a moment because I knew finally Solange had moved out of Beyonce's shop. And that meant a lot to me. And I know it meant a whole lot to her to get out of the shadow. She could no longer be, oh, Beyonce's little sister, but Solange knows, uh, a true artist and songwriter. That, that was a big one for me, uh, real big. That's got to be tough, by the way. Jeez. I mean, I have a twin brother, Matthew, and we do different things. But I'm gonna be honest with you. Sometimes I feel like it's very sad for and emotional for me. Sometimes I feel like he's in my shadow because my success is a very public success. And so people say, and because we're twins, people say, hey, are you Dr. Ian? And so anywhere he goes, they think it's me. So he's constantly reminded that he's not Dr. Ian and everyone knows Dr. Ian. And that's got to be tough. I, I mean, I'm very it, it is tough. Yeah, and it's heart wrenching because you know Kelly and Michelle. You know when they do interviews, and now they moved away from Dusty Child and they're working on projects themselves. Uh, whenever they interview, uh, you know, it, it. Did you see the Janet Jackson uh, documentary? 
Uh, did you get to see that? There's a point that she that she's frustrated because every time she would interview it, end up being like, well, tell us about Michael. <laughs> you know. So that's that's really tough for everyone. I mean, I've even experienced it. I don't so much now, but there was a point uh, when I interviewed people wanted to talk about Beyonce, not about what we had scheduled to talk about in the interview. Uh, but I learned since learned skill set that I can uh, uh, deflect and move on to stay on top. Is, is Beyonce aware of the of of what happens to everyone else? Like around her because of that? Is she aware of that? And how does she feel about yeah, that? She, she's very sensitive to that. Uh, I'm very well aware of that. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I Like I said, my own personal situation, you yeah. know, it doesn't make me feel good at all, you know? And uh, and here's the other part of it, by the way. My brother is equally talented, equally smart, equal everything. It just so happens that I tend to be in a business that's public and he's not. So it, it's not even like, you know, I'm better than. It's just that you know, so it's one of those those t- tough situations. So when you, people come to you all the time, I'm sure, and say, how do I do this for my kid? What do you say to people when they do that? I tell them quickly, they should take my class. Uh, I teach the fundamentals of the music industry in a digital age at a, uh, online, actually. I, I taught at University of Houston. Now I'm at Point Blank Music School um, that you can go online and register. Class starts in a month, so it's plenty of time. But let me tell you, Ian, when I talk to artists, because I get the same thing, oh, I'm, I got a great song, I'm going to make you a million dollars. You know, people don't want to put in their work. Mm. For every 100, I, I wouldn't even say that, for every 500 people I talk to, maybe three wants to want to really put in the work and get the knowledge. Uh, and so when I hear that, I tell them and I don't, I let it roll off of me because I know most people, I just said where to go, point blank. If one person does it, I'd be surprised because they think it's microwave success. And success is not microwave. You have to put in the work. That's why passion becomes important because if you're, it's a hobby, you don't want to do it. You're going to be like, oh, I'm not going to pay $3,000. Well, you're going to waste about 25 to 30, and you're going to waste two, three years of your life. You're not going to work out because you're going to put the work in. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, and I tell my kids all the time, you know, champions are made in practice. They are yes. not made in the game. They are yes. made in practice. And I tell them over and over. And, and listen, I know people don't want to always practice. I didn't always want to practice, but I still did it because I knew that the work and the results were correlative. Like, you know, they, they correlated. And so, you know, they were commensurate. And so I tell people that all the time. Um, before I get, I do a little thing called um, Dr. Ian's Random Seven. And, and before I get, and there are quick, seven quick questions that you answer very quickly. Before I get there, um, let me ask you about dealing with the pressure, right? You're Matthew Knowles. You're the father of Beyonce and Solange. You manage Destiny's Child. What is the pressure like for all of you involved, the media pressure? And I know you love fans and fans make you guys successful, but what is that pressure like? I think we often 
put the pressure on ourselves if we don't quite understand it. I mean, you know, we we understand the media, lots of media training. All of my artists take media training. Uh, and understand, we understand the goals of media. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, most people don't realize when we had radio, radio wasn't to play music. Radio is to sell advertising. The audience then allows them, the size of the audience allows them how much they get for that advertising. TV magazines, the same thing. The article allows them to sell advertising based on the number one. So time, sometimes you have to understand there's going to be sensationalism. Um, you have to give and take with that. And, and, and so you understand the process. And, and Beyonce, Solange, Destiny Child, and, and all of our artists, or most of them, understood the process. You know, my office does social media. I do LinkedIn uh, because that's professional and I like that. Uh, but you have to understand, and I feel so sad as our young people growing up uh, put so much into what someone said on social media. Uh, that just how many people like and what they say has never been important to me. When I tell you, Ian, that just has never been, I'm a leader. And in leadership and being a visionary, people aren't going to get you. And you have to be okay because being a visionary is a lonely road sometimes. And so I'm willing to walk down that road. I'm willing to take the bullets that comes with it. You know, some people, and, and you have to understand people have a right to have their perspective. I encourage different perspectives. Some people will love this interview. Some people won't like the interview. But that's, they have the right for that. So I don't take it personally like that. Um, and, and I'm mentally able to be okay with that. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a life coping skill for everybody, by the way, is to be able to be confident and find that you are not always going with the grain uh, and that there will be critics no matter what you do. You can't please all the people all the time. That's just... That's yeah. just how it is. And I can only imagine, by the way, in your situation, uh, and it goes for Tiger Woods' dad or, or Richard Williams, I can only imagine kind of all of the nonsense that we don't even in the public, we don't even know all the nonsense you guys have to deal with. Uh, false statements, paparazzi, you know, the list goes on and on. And so I, once again, I salute you because people don't think about that. But but that is also a skill to be able to handle all of that and still be who you are and still do what you want to do is no simple task. Yeah, it's not. But we were able to, to master it and uh, to understand it first and foremost. Yeah. OK, Dr. Ian's seven random questions. I'm going to ask you seven quick questions. And it's your answers. It's not me responding, just your answers. And they're random seven questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. OK. What makes Matthew Knowles really angry? Racism. Do you want one word so you want me to expand? It's up to you, your answer. Yeah, racism really does because, you know, I, I think we are at a point where there's a, there's a, a, melt, a, a melting point that if we don't get this together and get it right soon, uh, there's going to be an explosion in America. Uh, and we have to understand that we all are culturally different and understand those differences, accept those differences. That whole thing, uh, I don't see color, that's BS. We do see color. It, and it's okay that your approach is different than mine or culturally it's different. And we have to learn acceptance. 
So racism really makes me angry. If Matthew Knowles was not a businessman, entrepreneur, and um, a musical um, person, business person, what would you be doing? What else Airplane would you be doing? I love to fly. Uh, I took flying lessons when I was early on in my life. And I didn't have enough money and wasn't focused because uh, it takes a lot of focus if you're going to be a pilot. Uh, but I enjoy flying and I would love to be a pilot. Who have you never met before who you would like to sit down to dinner with and have a nice conversation? Uh, former President Obama. I would love to have, have the opportunity to, to meet with him. Uh, I did have a chance when Beyonce did the inauguration, uh, when she was uh, and sang it for him and Mrs. Obama. Uh, I didn't have the opportunity to be there because I was at Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, with a major presentation the next morning. And I was there sitting in a bar with nothing but white people around me saying all sorts of negative things. Uh, about it. And so I would just like to, to have that opportunity uh, to meet him and, and say hello and to let him know something that nobody knows. He doesn't know this. He didn't know that I spent $75,000 out of my pocket with Beyonce's performance because there was a concern in putting it together with his people that the cost was so might be so high that Republicans would make a big deal out of it. So I wasn't going to cut back on Beyonce's performance, what she needed. And so I, out of my pocket, this is the first time I've ever said this, I put $75,000 of my own money. And I just want to tell him and hope he just says thank you. Who have you always had a crush on and why? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> okay. Who did I always have a crush on? Uh, and they didn't know I had a crush on them. Is that it? Right. They didn't right. know I had a crush on them. Oh, God, man. I, nobody comes to mind. I got to have a blank on that. I, Singer, I, movie star? It would probably be an artist, but I just my mind is blanking on that right now. <laughs> okay. I, 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 I can't think of anyone either. Maybe okay. I, by the time this is over, I think of somebody. Okay. Uh, next question. Um, what do you own? that's really expensive and you don't feel guilty about it? Well, um, my corporation I own uh, that had a, a tremendous amount of success and uh, I, I don't feel guilty about that. Good. Um, what does success look like to you? Success looked like to me, I think everybody's definition is different. When I reached the pinnacle and goal of my passion, uh, when I can, inside of success, help other people uh, and be able to give back, because that to me is very important in success. Uh, and, and when I can look in a mirror and say I did the very, very best that I could uh, and accomplish the goals that I had for myself, to me, that's success. Last question. A hundred years from now, someone finds an article and a sepia colored newspaper. And that article is about Matthew Knowles. What do you want to make sure that article says? That he was a incredible man, that he 
loved his family, uh, that he gave back to the community. Uh, and he had a lot of battle scars as a kid, uh, so that a lot of us, and not just me, many, many others, uh, the trauma uh, that we had and had to endure uh, through desegregation and integration. Uh, that's what I would hope that people would know more of me outside of the music realm, but me, the man, me, the person. Matthew, how can people follow you on social or get involved in your endeavors uh, with your online course? I, I just simply ask everyone always just to go to matthewknowles.com and they can get everything there. They can book me to speak there. They can understand the courses I'm teaching. They can understand, go to my all my social media. Uh, just simply go to my name, Matthew knows.com can't be any simpler than that right <laughs> hey but one thing i want to say before we leave please did you know and i'm sure you know of the four founding fathers of the black student union at harvard clifford darden lydian lambert theodore lewis and roy willis now i think this is the 52nd year that the black student union did you know that roy willis is my father-in-law I am married to his daughter. Holy cow. And I'm uh, Roy, amazing man, first to integrate UVA, then to go on to Harvard, uh, then to be appointed by the mayor uh, Bradley to redevelop both Watts in downtown LA. Um, but I said, I bet you he doesn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And that is, you talk about touching greatness. That is greatness right there. That's yes. one for the history book. Matthew Knowles, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you. And I hope we can do this again. We will, my friend. Much love, much respect to you. Thanks so much for listening to the conversation today. I hope it has a positive impact on your life. Of course, you can reach out to me and follow me on social. On Twitter, it's at Dr. Ian Smith, D-R-I-A-N Smith. On Instagram, at Dr. Ian Smith. Make sure you spell the doctor out, I-A-N Smith. And on Facebook, Dr. Ian Smith. And of course, if you want to transform your life starting in eight weeks, pick up a copy of my new book. It's called Burn, Melt, Shred. And join our Facebook group by the same name, Burn, Melt, Shred. I do Facebook live sessions, Zoom sessions, all free to help you transform your life. And make sure you check out my website, www.dreiansmith.com. Make sure you spell out the doctor. Take care. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is hosted by Dr. Ian Smith, associate producer Ariel Mancibo, executive producers Ian Smith and Ken Johnson. Find the Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, or on IG at Dr. Ian Smith. Conversations with Dr. Ian Smith is a Mean Old Line Media production.